Dear listeners, happy all of the holidays to you. Um, as we are in this time of so many holidays and so many family gatherings, um, we just wanted to acknowledge that holidays can be so beautiful for a lot of people and also hard for a lot of people, sometimes especially if you're queer. And um, I just wanted to give a shout out to using the terms family of origin and chosen family, not just saying family flat up to refer to family of origin. I love that in the way that it it doesn't denigrate family of origin, but it, it does um, elevate chosen family, which is something which I think is deeply important. Totally. And the fact that it suggests that family is not inherent necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the idea of, of um, it reminding us that we have the permission to um, craft our families the way we want them to be. Mm-hmm. And I want to share along those lines something that my wonderful and wise sibling wrote on Thanksgiving. And it is three cheers for chosen families. Sometimes water is, contrary to popular belief, thicker than blood. Three cheers for supportive biological families and extended family. And here's to you if you are remembering or going home for the holidays to a quote-unquote family that does not support, accept, acknowledge, know, or love who you truly are. Whether you have to stay silent at the table, hide very real fears, lie about who you love, be stared at or whispered about, endure incorrect pronouns, wear clothes that do not suit your identity and or answer to wrong name. The list could go on and on regrettably. Here's wishing you courage and peace. There are many with you in solidarity and sympathy, so please take whatever comfort in that there might be. Our love is what we make of it. 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 Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, hi. Hello. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. I am Dave, and my preferred pronoun is he. I'm Stephanie, and I go by she or they. And I'm Jenny, and I go by they and them. Hi. Excellent. Yay. Hello. So excited to have Jenny with us. I, um, I've come across their writing a ton, and um, they are a wonderful writer and poet and activist, and I'm really excited to dig in with you. Thank, Thank you so you. much Excited for being to be here. here. Yay. And Great. So we kick this off as we always do with what is your relationship to relationships? Cool. Um, I think that's an interesting question uh, for folks like me, I guess, and a lot of other people whose uh, relationships, very broadly speaking, are a combination of like political relationships, organizing relationships, creative relationships, um, and this funny thing like called romantic relationships and friendships. Um I think myself and a lot of my friends, right, um, folks who are invested in movement building and social movement building um, that centers the lives and experiences and perspectives of uh, queer people of color in particular are don't necessarily have a choice of, you know, having um, one type of relationship or another. Um, we sort of are in a position where we have to build families and really close-knit connections with people who otherwise, um, I guess in the world, can be called friends. Um, but because we are in a position where we have to share resources and ideas and um, a lot of intimacy in order to build the kinds of communities and uh, political spaces that we're trying to create together, um, 
I think those friendships have a much more like intense and deep character to them, um, which I really value and celebrate, but it's also like really, really hard work. Um, I would say I don't aspire to or think of my life in a trajectory of um, where I like want to place romantic relationships on a pedestal. I think they're, they're a place to have like a certain type of emotional um, and or care work done. I still want to maintain though that friendship is actually one of the most radical and like transformative things that we can have um, and is deeply, deeply undervalued because we have all these like um, structures of where like romance and love and sex are uh, the ways we structure our lives because it's like more useful for people to be like fucking and reproducing babies than it is for like us to have friendships right in the eyes of like a society that wants us to be having children that creates more um, people who can like you know, conquer the land, like own property, um, rather than like building relationships that are reciprocal and based on resource sharing outside of those models. Serious. Amen to that. Yeah. Whoa. That's always, has that, um, uh, that way of looking at the world, which I almost completely share, um, has that always been the way that you framed relationships or what has been your journey with getting to that place? journey to get that? Um, I think, when I grew up, um, I, I grew up in Missouri. I didn't have a tremendous like amount of friends, um, so I didn't necessarily have uh, friendships in the sense that I do now, where I spend a lot of time with people and have access to people in those ways. Um, I grew up as a like really shy and continue to be a really shy person, but now I just live in spaces where there are more people. Um, and I have access to people in a particular way and partially facilitated by the internet, I think. But um, I think that's some that's been a place that I've come to as I've been more politically active um, because I think doing political work in a like severely compromised world, right? A world that's where like attacks on people's basic humanity is sort of constant. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to build different kinds of models for... Uh, just supporting people through the trauma of doing that work in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Holy shit. <laughs> um, I'm uh, so the, the question that we typically ask at this point, which is um, so what lit the fire under your ass to, to do this sort of work, which seems um, so beautiful and so important and so utterly exhausting that I'm, I'm just inspired by finding the, the, the time and resolve to do it. I feel, I, I feel super lazy just hearing about um, you talk about your work. Um, I would f- say uh, it doesn't feel like a choice necessarily. Um, sure. It mm-hmm. feels like perhaps, um, I, I mean, I always am intentional about framing the work that I do both political and creative as solidarity work. Um, because I've been enfranchised in a lot of ways and I'm in a position to do, um, art that is palatable to certain people because of various structures of racism and classism, et cetera. Right. And I know how to speak a particular language that particular people can hear. Um, and I speak English, like that's one thing. Right. Um, but the, I think the, I don't know if the work is necessarily a choice. Um, I think it's a part of existing in a compromised world where my communities and my friends, people that I care about, um, aren't able to survive and exist in ways that they should be able to. Right. Um, I think it's as simple as that. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what of, in terms of your work as a poet, which I've been blown away by on a couple of different occasions, um, what of the, not, again, not to like need to pigeonhole the work that you do, but what, what themes, structures, textures, colors are you most passionate about at the moment? Yeah. Um, I think the ways that I've been trying to describe my work to people of late is that, um, I want my, I think there's a lot of real, real importance, um, to work that is uh, very explicit in the ways that it talks about identity and political issues and all these things, right? Um, race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera. I think that's super important. Um, I also am sort of exhausted by that being the only vector by which a lot of people will understand, um, quote, minority art or minority mm-hmm. artists. Um, I think that the way that I think about and envision my work is that it's work that has revolutionary blood and a backbone, but isn't necessarily always uh, using language that people expect um, of the revolution or the post-revolution. Um, I do a lot of work that's like futuristic or science fictional um, and plays with stories and mythologies in particular ways. Um, but I really just am invested in writing about things that seem very ordinary, like uh I don't know, food, love, sex, intimacy, like everyday things, um, but in ways that carry always, always a perspective that like everything is actually really fucked up. Um, And the, uh, but with an aspiration to like creating something new, right? The power of art is that we can come to very complex um, things, political and otherwise, with both our emotions and like a creative energy that allows us to inspire new meaning and world making, right? Hmm. Um, that's what I try to do. And we're going to feature your poem, A Love Story, a little cool. later in the episode. Will you tell us a little bit about that particular poem? Um, sure. Um, it's one of those pieces where I've, I think some, I don't even remember who said this. It was just someone who said this to me in a conversation in passing, but, um, was saying that poetry wouldn't need to exist if I could explain the meaning of a thing, right? Like if I could explain the meaning of this poem, then the poem itself wouldn't need to exist. And I think that's something really special. Um, it's actually what I aspire to in particular types of poetry where I'm not trying to necessarily make a very clear statement. I'm actually trying to hold the beauty that is paradox itself um, because so much of our existence is caught up in really hard to grasp paradox. And if I make some attempt to like get close to that, uh, the actual essence of a thing, um, that feels really powerful. Um, so mm-hmm. that's something that I tried to do with this piece in just trying to uh, tie together, I think, uh, love and death and attachment and um, just cycles of life. It's uh, in sort of like every meaning of that phrase, right? The cycles that happen within a lifetime and also like the cycles of life as a broader concept. Um, I was trying to pull those together, but I was also just trying to speak from a place that was just sad because I actually think that ultimately love is a, it's actually like very sad concept. Um, that is totally intertwined with death and dying and passing and moving on. Hmm. And for before we move on to listener questions, yeah. um, will you just share a little bit more about where anybody can find more of your work and more about you? Sure. Um, I'm on Tumblr. My Tumblr is queerdarkenergy.tumblr.com. Um, I also perform with my creative partner, other half um, friend who... 
uh, is amazing. And we, our, our website is at darkmatterage.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is awesome. <laughs> I'm super inspired. And now we're going we're gonna to answer your questions, starting with the crowdsource question. Crowdsource question! Yeah! <laughs> the mighty return. Well done. It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. Thank you so much to all of you who wrote in. What question did you source to the crowd, Stephanie? This question was... Uh, somebody wrote a question addressed to me saying, um, Stephanie, I hear that you go by she or they. And I'm just wondering where you're coming from there. I'm, I'm new to to hearing that talked about. And so I am happy and excited to talk more about why that, why that is a choice for me, but also, um, I wanted to open the question up to listeners and hear more perspectives. And so thank you so much to all of you who wrote in. Well, it looks like we have some answers right here. We have so many. We're going to share seven, which is not all of them, but we'll also put together a blog post, which is a collection of a lot from all of you. Response number one. I go by she, but I notice and appreciate when people use they to refer to me and people around me when they are new acquaintances. In my mind, that means that they are educated on these issues and aren't making any assumptions. And that's from D. The second one is my preferred pronouns are they, them, there, and ze, them, zer. I like them best because as a genderqueer person, I feel they are the pronouns that encompass my gender the best inside the limited language systems we have for non-binary genders now. Knowing that folks close to me use gender neutral pronouns when talking about me with others makes me feel like my gender is being reflected accurately in the world even when I'm not around. And that makes me feel really great. Yay, pronouns. Basically, I hate the gender binary, so to use a pronoun at all feels odd. However, as I'm a realist and have my doubts about the social constructs of he and she ever going away in my lifetime, if I must be called one or the other, I prefer he as socially as it stands now. Most generally, that is how I would like to be seen. If two people were waiting for me for lunch and an individual who knew me assured the other that he meaning I, will be coming soon and it's just a bit late. I'd prefer the picture of the individual that did not know me would paint as it stands today rather than the picture they'd paint if they were assured that she is coming soon as it would be more accurate. Really, it's just for other people. I'd like to exist as a she if he's and she's were the same. I would not mind my body if there were no gender. I don't think bodies matter. If people could recognize me as a man, regardless of biological associations of gender, I'd be fine with that. But what the hell? That's not going to happen for a long time. So here we are, and I'll keep binding my breasts and giving other people the shorthand that they have been programmed to need to see me for who I am. It is very frustrating. Seriously, fuck the binary. See. <laughs> um, when first introduced to the concept of a preferred gender pronoun, I told people people my preferred was we and sometimes they emphasizing collective decision slash action and accepting that it sounded a bit schizophrenic but later i changed it to the more expected he him slash they in part because i feel that for those of us who have cis straight privilege one of the responsibilities of being an ally is to leave room for others to define or not define themselves as they wish and to let that still mean something queerness is to me a vital radical force i want to leave open the space that it helps to create and not hasten the forces of normalization slash mainstreaming that threaten to close that space. In practice, people almost always use feminine pronouns to describe me, but when I'm asked for my preferred pronouns, I also say she or they. There are a few reasons. While I'm generally perceived to be a cis woman, I don't identify as entirely cis, and I want to acknowledge that. I believe that it's important to have non-gendered pronouns in our common vocabulary and think any opportunity to increase people's exposure to them is a good thing. Finally, I like to question default assumptions and encourage others to do the same. I do sometimes worry that using they as a second option, which people will probably ignore, may be insulting or diminishing to people who rely on it as their only option. I hope it will be taken as a gesture of solidarity and empathy, but would welcome any thoughts from gender non-conforming individuals about whether it actually feels that way. L. 
I use he because that reflects who I am. I know it is not that simple for everybody, but it really is for me. Although I'm comfortable being referred to as either she or they, I slightly prefer they. It makes me feel nice and warm to hear myself referred to as they, whereas being called she feels either neutral or a little bit weird. I think the reason I prefer they is because it creates a rare moment when my gender is not at the forefront of someone's impression of me. Otherwise, as a female presenting person, I can't go anywhere uh, or do anything without being seen as a capital W woman with all the baggage and stereotypes and even harassment and discrimination that that entails. As a they, my personality and accomplishments get to stand on their own, neither in spite of nor because of the gender I happen to have. And that's from Mary, who was the guest in our last episode, who asked uh, that they did not need to be uh, anonymous. Mm -hmm. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mary. Um, And thank you again to everybody. I always say our our listeners are the sexiest. Um, And I am happy to answer for me too, although there's so many ideas in what we just read from the listeners and bits of a lot of them resonate with me. And... um, I use she, I say she or they, um, because I, for me, what I really mean is like she asterisk with a footnote. Like I definitely, I'm, I'm definitely female presenting. Um, I definitely have the, the privileges that come along with reading as more along the binary, but I, um, I feel very gender complex inside myself. And so I feel like it's more like when somebody who doesn't know me says she, I feel that, um, and, and if I presume that they're coming from seeing the world as like, as strictly polarized male and masculine and female feminine, then I feel like they're not seeing me for who I am, but that's a stranger. So they don't, so anybody who knows me well enough for me to ask them to say they, um, they can say she, and that feels fine to me because I know that they're, they're saying like she complex asterisk footnote, um, and have, and maybe even have like share my view of the world where, where pronouns are not so simple, but I also struggle with somebody else brought up like saying they at all where like, maybe that's, um, for me that this is, that this is a complex thing, but yet because I, I wear myself as female presenting that I don't need to say they. And so I don't want to like take up space for those that, that, that feel that like very strongly, um, um, much less presenting on the binary than I do. And I feel like I'm getting jumbled, but I'm so glad to hear from all of you guys as well, because, um, this is still, uh, an active question for me of what, what feels like it represents me, but also, um, is me doing doing right by others that I care about. Yeah. Do you have immediate response to those responses or, or, Oh gosh. Um, I guess this is, this is a question that, um, I, or not this specific question, but um, a lot of people are, I think introduced to, uh, what trans means through the conversation around pronouns more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have noticed in a lot of, um, I perform in a lot of spaces. Um, I perform a fair amount in different kinds of university and student spaces. Um, and a lot of trans one-on-one curriculums at uh, colleges tend to be very like, uh, this is how you respect someone's pronouns. This is the gender binary, et cetera. Um, that actually feels really uh, flat. It feels like a really flat way to think about uh, why gender exists the way it does. Um, and I think it's totally possible 
for us to do a trans curriculum that doesn't ignore the fact that gender actually like comes from everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that trans and cis are really uh, reductive ways to think about um, why gender exists the way it does. That's um, yet another binary. Yeah. And I feel like for me, like my uh, s- solidarity is not necessarily with like all trans people. My solidarity is with like uh, formerly and currently currently colonized and enslaved people whose genders are policed regardless of like where they are on the cis and trans binary, right? Like policing black men for having sagging pants is an act of gender policing. Mm-hmm. Um, saying like violence against uh, indigenous women um, and indigenous people in general as this like continent was conquered um, is an act of like gender violence, right? And I think our... Um, I don't know. I, I've I've seen too much like trans politics fixated on like making sure people use your pronouns. Um, my goal in life is not that like uh, everybody uses my pronouns. Um, I don't. I actually am not going to go into like non English speaking immigrant communities, some of which I'm a part of, right? Um, and say if you don't use my pronouns and you don't accept me, I think that there are like vast and diverse ways of uh, showing solidarity with trans people. Um, especially considering like, I think the latest statistic is that trans people the world over are 400 times more likely to uh, be, uh, victims of hate violence. Right. Mm. Um, it's really, I think what, 43%, 43 attempt suicide, 43% suicide and like half of trans women of color in the U S have been to jail. Right. This is like the situation. Staggering and heartbreaking. Yeah. And I don't think that the. I think the pronoun conversation sometimes becomes a distraction. I think it's like an important first step and I think it's like a great like gateway. Um, I don't want us to get stuck there and I definitely don't want people to think that like uh, using someone's pronouns is like the end of what our allyship (laughs) looks like. Um, I actually think that my allyship to the trans community is much more around like ending the prison system and the police system and these, and like poverty, which are the things that are actually attacking trans life on a daily basis. Huge amen to that. (laughs) I, I say often in a, this is some, um, just in, in fewer words like that, um, it's not wanting to be about political correctness, wanting it to be about like, what is the world that I would like to see? And I feel like I too, and, and I know a lot of people who get, who I I do see that getting caught up in the pronouns. And I, I do, um, I I feel like I'm hearing you saying that it like, it's a, it can be like a a first step or an, or an entry point, but, um, I would love, can you speak a little bit more to the, I, this is the kind of thing I feel like should be self-evident, but I think is not like uh, w- ways of being a strong ally to um, to trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming people that go way deeper than pronouns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think first of all, it's recognizing that um, trans is a really weird umbrella. Um, and I think for me, when I'm saying trans and like LGBT in general are really weird umbrellas mm-hmm. um, is that it masks a lot of difference within that huge, huge community, right? Um, like 89% of people who are victims of anti-LGBT violence are people of color. Um, this is not 
and and what is it now? Seventy five percent are trans women, right? When so when we're talking about who is experiencing the brunt of the violence and like, um, with what is gender based violence? Because people aren't being gay bashed necessarily because they're gay. For the most part, it's because their gender their genders are presented in a way that is threatening to people, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what gay bashing also means is the people who are being gay bashed are um, the ones who also carry other marginalized identities, right? Um, so it's largely trans women of color, whether that's in prisons, on the streets, in detention centers, who are facing um, the burden of this. Um, I th- and who are also like at the front lines of the resistance. Um, so for me, doing the work um, of like being in solidarity with trans communities um, looks like centering the experiences of trans communities who are the most marginalized um, and fighting like hell to leverage whatever privileges we have available to us to make sure that they have the resources to fight the fight that they fight every day. Um, which means everything from like giving your money away if that's something that you have available to you, um, making sure that organizations that are severely underfunded because um, there are far few, t- there are far too few people who are like invested in funding like anti uh, violent uh, resistance work against anti trans um, and like racialized anti trans violence. Um, giving away money, making sure that like you, whatever communities you have access to, for me, that's like not just my friend groups, but my, um, family of origin, that those conversations like are on the table, um, because people are more likely to listen to like people who are close to them and who look like them. Um, and there just aren't, and for that reason, there just aren't that many, um, stages and spaces for like many, many marginalized people to have their voices and experiences, um, heard. Um, and so I guess the, the way I come to like all acts of allyship is never from a place of like, I'm going to go into this community and save them, but rather I'm going to organize my own in my own community to do damage control. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I, from like my position, the community that is like killing like low income trans women of color is like also my community. Um, and part of my role is to do um, harm reduction, education, damage control within the communities that I have access to. Mm-hmm. Can I push a little further there? Just because I think this is so important. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little specifically then what that looks like, that damage control, that harm reduction? Um, for me, it's really, um, it starts with like conversations um, that tend to be really, really difficult. I don't come from like a family or community that's like super uh, pro-trans, like resisting the prison system, right? I come from a family where those conversations are slow and hard and awkward. Um, And that's part of the work, having slow, hard, awkward conversations with like, uh, whether it's your mom or the people that you go to school with, um, Mm. organizing the places that you are. Um, If you're a student or you're part of some organization that concentrates a lot of money, um, figuring out ways to pull that organization's money out of prisons. Um, I think divesting from uh, private prisons is actually like a huge step that we could take as Holy like shit, a yes. nation. Um, to what I think the statistic now is that trans women are um, 19 times more likely to be raped in prison than anybody else, right? And I don't think anybody should be in prison, but I also think that um, I think that like prison abolition is an act of trans justice um, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and that trans justice can't just look like us saying, oh, we know what who trans people are and how to like address people. Um, it actually has to look like 
okay, we know the violence that people are experiencing and know how to organize within our own power to lessen it. Um, I don't know. So for me, it's like looking for everyday acts that um, may be slow, hard, and awkward. It's looking for um, places to give our money that um, are directly supporting trans organizers, um, doing like intersectional, like, you know, multi-issue trans work. Um, trans Justice Funding Project is a great place to start for that. What's that? Uh, one the Trans Justice Funding Project. Okay. They fund grassroots trans work around the country, a lot of which is not incorporated. And it's a lot harder for people who aren't incorporated to get money. Mm. So, yeah. <sighs> I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being noticeably quiet on this episode thus far. And, um, I think that I th- think that I th- I'm curious to know why, and I don't really know. I feel like this is a, an area that um, I have such immense, I have such immense immense privilege in this in this conversation, just being a cis white dude, and that as much as I've given thought to it and attempted strongly to be an ally, I feel like there's so much I have to learn, and. I'm, and I don't even, and and often, despite how, how deeply I care about being an ally here, I so often feel that I'm not even ready for the one-on-one class that I'm, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at, I'm in high school trans and haven't even gotten to the college level yet. And, um, I want to make it clear that my, that my silence here is not at all reticence for this. It's just that I feel like I don't know anything. And, um, that may be why I, Dave, so far seem less present on this podcast than usual. As always, I love and appreciate your self-awareness and check-in. And I, I feel a little bit similarly in that I, just in terms of, um, you know, we've had other like, like friends and colleagues on this podcast where the tone is a little more upbeat, but, or, um, I feel like, um, one of the reasons why I was, I am so, so thrilled to have you here, Jonathan, is because like whenever I read something of yours, I am bowled over by a similar sense of like, there's so much that I don't know. Yeah. And I want to be, I want to be really, I, I don't want to lose sight of that, but also sometimes that sense of, I'm such a fucking beginner. I can't, I, care so much i i read and think so much about about trans issues gender-based violence across the spectrum and always still feel like i don't know anything and like i i'm interested in moving further beyond the paralysis that i often feel when when i have that sense and so i'm uh that that is something that i'm sitting with totally like like more I do take action to stand in solidarity and I want to do even more. And I'm not always sure what that looks like, but I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm working on being less stumbly. (laughs) If I can speak to that for a second. Um, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot is, um, especially in relation to the internet. Um, because I think that one thing that's happened is that a lot of people, when there are very visible moments of crisis, even though I think that actually we are in moments of crisis all the time, mm. 
when there are very visible moments of crisis, everyone's like very active on the internet suddenly and like social media in particular. And I think it's a very genuine way for people to be like, okay, I actually care about this, but I'm like trying to figure out how to care. Um, and it makes us feel like we're doing something and I'm myself included, right? The internet can like help us feel like we're doing something. Um, and for a lot of people, it's been like a great space to develop conversations and have community that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, but I think, um, that desire and drive to like want to be seen and visible on the internet, um, comes from a similar place sometimes, sometimes comes from a similar place of like not quite knowing how to like, uh, show care or solidarity. Um, and for me that the, those expressions of care and solidarity, I actually like want to break up into smaller pieces for people. Um, I don't think the, the work of, uh, Obviously, obviously, like the work of like undoing prisons and borders is not one that is shouldered by like one person. It's something that's Mm -hmm. been shouldered by like many, many people across time and space. Um, And I actually think that political work is uh, ultimately like the pieces of political work that we each take on um, is not necessarily simplistic, but it's simple and it's small. Um, and is things as simple as like caring for each other. Um, if people need resources, making sure that they have those, if you have like extra space or time or money to give, giving those away. Um, and if like you need like a first step, um, I, I, I actually think that the people, um, uh, I, I totally understand the sentiment, I guess is what I'm trying to say of like feeling like I don't know enough, therefore I can't do anything. Um, because I experience that all the time. Um, and I know a lot of, like a lot of people come to me with, with that particular feeling and I'm like, yeah, there's so much to know and learn. Um, but actually a lot of that learning happens, um, in the process of organizing and doing work and supporting people. Um, it doesn't, it's not knowledge that can be gained like uh, meaningfully necessarily from like books, mm-hmm. um, right? Um, there's so there's there's a space that ideas can get us to, and then there's another space that um, doing things can get us to. Um, so for me, like what I always think of for people is um, as like a first step. It's like, well, look up who's already doing organizing in your community. Um, somebody might have already started a black and pink chapter. Um, and if you are invested in like queer anti-prison work, you should like look it up and see if you can write letters to queer prisoners. Um, if you are like interested in political work, but don't have anything around you and like, trust me, I've been there. Um, I didn't grow up in New York and I wasn't always surrounded by like lots and lots of political organizing. Right. Um, but if there's nothing available to you, like host a fundraiser, like throw a bake sale, donate the proceeds to somebody's bail fund. Like it's not, it doesn't need to always be, I think on this like massive scale. Yeah. Um, even though we're facing massive problems, I think that we actually like become more, uh, effective agents of change if we don't, um, look at our acts as needing to be huge and like, uh, performative. I actually mm. think that doing like quiet acts of like solidarity being like writing an email to your family on your birthday being like, I actually don't want a gift. I want you to all give like 10 bucks to this person's um, fundraiser for their like rid- ridiculously underfunded organization. Mm. Um, I think those are always interesting, small ways to like create like ripples of like, oh, I never thought about that within spaces we have access to. I also love how that ties in with what you said before about how I just get that. I feel like 
there's so much that's an utter emergency and so much that is urgent. And then like, I think about this past week, um, Oh my God. In with, um, with yet another non-indictment of, um, a of police officer police murdering a man on camera. Yeah. And that's not even talking about the, I don't have the numbers, but all, you know, we, we don't have a discussion about the, uh, women and trans people who experience police brutality every, every day, every week. And, and so, but these, these two, uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner have, have been a, have, have sparked so much, um, extra stepping up and so much momentum in like a movement building way that I, I think is really positive, even though it's on such like the shoulders, something so dastardly. And, and so it, on the one hand I hold that. And then I hold that, like, this is going on even when it's less visible. And so what I love about, I love a lot of what, what you're saying, but I especially love how that's, that's a way to like move forward day to day with the awareness that, there is so much urgent heartbreaking stuff going on and that we so, uh, and that we can there's never an enough nobody's ever going to do enough but that it's not that we need a moment where the whole rest of the world is like declaring this is the moment and this is the emergency that everybody is focusing on and we also don't need to no individual needs to save the whole world by themselves because obviously nobody can but that um that i i appreciate you speaking to um to basically like entry points and i think a lot about how i would like to um I I often say like I identify as an activist and like on the one hand I own that but on the other hand I would like it if everybody or nobody identified as an activist Mm -hmm. Um, and I would like to see that term used differently or even like challenge my own use of it because I think that just like being a civilian and a person in the world like should be being an activist and that doesn't have to mean like going to every march and rally and to um it's not not to let people off the hook, but like give people permission to step up, like not feel like, oh, activists are those people over there who like yeah. risk getting arrested every day. Like there's there's so many shades of what that can be. And there's there's room for everybody in that term. Yeah. Oh, boy. I felt such despair all week in a really and probably in an unhelpful way. And I felt this um, really just abject despair about uh, seeing seeing what happened um with michael brown and eric garner and the police officers who were walking free after killing them um and not only that but the widespread reaction to justifying the offenses that the cops committed and um it's really brought i think that sometimes i view the world with rose-tinted glasses and don't remember that it's not only okay but like during were to be completely and totally openly and proudly racist and beat and and that being a totally fine thing to do and so i felt this whole week just really crying a lot and then knowing that just trying to read online people's experiences and reactions to people who are in these communities and that this knowledge makes me feel more despair and knowing that i'm in such a position of privilege that i could never know this stuff i could ignore it and i would never know what's happening and so that's not an okay choice because that also makes me feel despair to know that my that i can i can be blind from the hate and terror that's being committed on my fellow human beings 
And so what I came to, knowing that knowing this stuff makes me feel despair and not knowing what makes me feel despair, is that shit's just really desperate and this is really, really hard for everyone. So... Yikes. And crying break over. <laughs> uh, moving on to your questions. Um, let's just say that this episode today is... Oh, let's have a word from our sponsor. <laughs> this episode today is brought to you by dogs. Dogs are really good, and touching them and being around them is really healing. Um, so if you have access to a dog, maybe go hug it or something, or play tug of war or fetch or something. Like, pet a dog. It might make you feel better. <laughs> given that everything is awful. <clears throat> Your questions. Uh, uh, what is the difference between an open relationship and a polyamorous relationship? If someone asks me, are you seeing anyone? Do I reply, I am polyamorous or I am in an open relationship? What happens when I explain to a new person who I am creating a new relationship with that I want to be open? And they say, you mean you're polyamorous? Gah, it's all so confusing. <laughs> Stephanie, I guess I guess I'm diving in with this one. Um, I, um, I, if I must pick a term, I define as I'm a relationship anarchist. Although, as a shorthand, sometimes I will say that I'm polyamorous, um, and I think that sometimes using the word polyamory or poly can be a like a useful organizing symbol or like rallying around, like even though it's necessarily reductive. Um, but what I would encourage this person who's writing in, like some people say poly, some people say open relationship. This can mean such a wide range of different things. Um, my excitement about all those terms and about um, why I say relationship anarchists for myself is that it's about that we get to create our own vocabulary for our connections that we're in. As Jenny was saying in the interview about um, friendships, families, romantic connections, work connections, that there, there, are, there, there are dominant ideas and structures of what those things are, but there's no rule book that says we need to be a part of a default of this is what two people who love each other or two people who want to have sex with each other or two people who want to care for each other when they're sick should look like. And so I just would put out a powerful invitation to, um, sure, you can look, look around and acknowledge how people in the world are using those terms and see if that might be useful to you. But say like what are the elements of this connection and what do you what's working for you here what do you need in this connection what is the shape of what you want it to be that um you're talking about in a new connection what word do you use but i would invite you to go way deeper like not what word do you use what kind of connection do you want to have um what um and so i know that that can feel sometimes exhausting and and maybe difficult um because it's, of course, sometimes smoother to go along with like, oh, this is a model that I've seen work. And so I will do it this way. And, and sometimes that model can work great for people. But I think um, I would encourage you to, um, to lift the fraughtness around that question of terminology. Word. Yeah. I, I feel like um, 
uh, uh, one amendment. I feel like more often or as often as not when you explain uh, open relationships to people who don't know, their response will be, so you're polygamous? (laughs) I've gotten that a lot. The which response is always like, well, no, I'm not married to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) And also, you know, problematic social structures given a lot. Okay. Anyway. Um, Yeah. Um, I agree Our love with is what we make of it, yo. There's a beautiful song that you have in Bona Bona Bonabo that I really, really like and I think about all the time where you're explaining all the people you want to celebrate. Oh, yeah. And it's the guy at the bodega and ex and future lovers. And um, I sing it in my, my head My nieces lot. and grandmother. Yeah. All the, yeah. Our love is what we make of it is the point of it. It's probably available for sa- for listening. Very uh, soon. For love free. songs for the rest of us. <laughs> okay, be released. Be okay. Yeah, in, I agree with Stephanie. Um, I guess I... Um, one of the things of Jenny's that I really loved reading a while back, um, you wrote strategies for non-oppressive polyamory. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And I, um, I love talking about alternative relationship structures and models and creating our own vocabulary. And I love the 101 conversations. And I think like books like opening up and the ethical slot are really important, like, um, entry points for, for those who maybe have not um, considered that that a family or a relationship can be beyond this like most the typical dominant structure of, of what we often see. Um, but what I really appreciate in what you wrote about is um, uh, let's dig deeper and go further there and how, and especially I think that sometimes there's a conception of like just by being in an open relationship or even say by like having lot just by having lots of sex or just by, um, you know, like, asking these questions or like being poly that that's um, then we've like reached some right. pinnacle of self-examination or it's in and of itself radical. Yeah. Which I can, in a sense I can see because I'm a fan of queering on all levels. And I think it's really, really important to remember that we're allowed to think about alternatives and that I think, and everybody's got to start somewhere. But um, I guess uh, I know that I want to keep thinking and talking more about the the power dynamics and structures and like reinforcing of macro societal things that are oppressive that can happen even within quote unquote radical structures like polyamory. And, um, I don't know, would you be okay to to speak a little more where you were coming with that piece? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out an entry point for this question. Um, I think where I was coming from for that piece in particular was just trying to get people to think about, um, which is, is which is like as I guess like always some part of the work, right? Just like making people reinsert race, class, and gender into every conversation. Um, that being polyamorous in and of itself is not, as you said, like a radical act, right? Um, but is like part of a formation of different kinds of um, acts of destabilizing what we've taken as sort of status quo. Um, I think my entry. In, these days, I guess, into thinking about what polyamory is and what it means um, is first remembering why monogamy exists as such like a dominant thing in the first place. Mm. Um, and Which we would say transfer of women as property from man to man. Yeah, transfer of women of, of, as property. And like if we think about why, um, like if we're talking about U.S. context, like this land that we call the United States, right? The reason that um, monogamous heterosexual couples had to exist um, was so that white people could transfer property from generation to generation um, to have babies, to like do that property transference. Um, 
And so I think of it as necessarily like a patriarchal project um, and are like racist and colonial thing, um, which isn't to say that like being monogamous is like itself a colonial thing, right? Not everybody has access to like lots of time to cultivate multiple relationships with multiple people. Um, but it is to say that like uh, we need to recognize where these institutions come from if we're trying to, uh, I guess, liberate ourselves from them. Um, I don't think that there is, um, I don't know. There's just, there's so many relationship models that have existed across time in so many societies, um, that can't be categorized within this like polyamory thing. Mm -hmm. Um, like, and a lot of, um, a lot of formations in my own like blood family, like family of origin, right, have been about like making sure that there's space for elders to move in with you, um, like not uh, giving up on the idea that um, families, even if uh, even if they enter into like packs like marriage, et cetera, like move away and um, drift from each other, which doesn't always work for people, right? Sometimes those are not situations we want to be in, but. Um, I think relating to multiple people at a time doesn't always ha have to mean like relating to multiple people romantically at a time. Mm -hmm. um, I actually like think of uh, like polyamorous friendship as a really valuable framework. Super. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think like we're investing with our friends, we're all poly <laughs> yeah. with our friends. And it's like, why is it weird for me to be investing like emotionally um, and deeply and like, um, like sharing, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of the le lessons that I like actually want to share with people about social justice or whatever, like are things that you learned in kindergarten and then like slowly forgot <laughs> um, or like very quickly forgot. But it's things like share, be nice, um, just don't be a brat, like whatever. D don't take other people's things. But these are all things that like the colonizers and the patriarchs <laughs> failed. A nap will do anyone a lot of good. <laughs> yeah. It's like rest, take care of each other, yeah. like eat lunch. Oh man, I love that frame. And I, um, I was having a conversation with a friend pain, yesterday. Finger pain, goddamn it! <laughs> Finger pain, right? Uh, with yesterday about how um, we just shared, like, as three friends, we shared like a really expansive, like, we did this like fire ceremony ritual, and then got to like spend like a whole lingering brunch, and then hanging out. And somebody was like. It's so weird. This is usually a thing that like I would only do with a lover. And I was talking about how much I love like the idea of this is uh, of like treat your friends as lovers and your lovers as friends, which that's too limited. Those categories. Are, but um, but I, I just I do what, what you're saying really resonates with me. Just like the we sometimes it's easy to like cordon off or like, I guess, privatize our compassion into these like Ooh. into these units about like oh now this is the person that i'm in a capital r relationship with that i'm going to care about and do these special things with and share with and all that stuff and then when and and somehow then that gets it's easy to get a, i think i think blind to the rest of the world and these values i know that's not a, that's that's an offshoot of what you were saying not no, absolutely not exactly that's listen. totally right it's bad. um can I just, if somebody like <laughs> in a social situation was just like, was asked you this question that the listener did of like, earnestly seeking, oh my God, when I meet somebody, do I say polyamorous or open relationship? What do I like? So in, 
we've we've gone pretty expansive, which is so awesome. And then how, where to you is the starting point for this? Like if somebody came to you with that question about terminology or like, how do I, how do I do this on a first date? How do I open up that conversation about what, you know? What um, I guess this is a conversation, like language is a conversation that I come to very much as a writer, right? Like, because what we're trying to do, um, what writers are trying to do is like uh, make that cavern between what people think and feel and experience and how they express themselves a little narrower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our language is always going to be imprecise. And so I guess the way I come to all questions about language is like use the language the person you're talking to will understand, mm-hmm. um, which may not be open or poly. It may just be like um, casual or like whatever, like it, it, whatever the language the person you're talking to will understand, which may be like multiple things at once. Um which I guess just involves like using more words than perhaps we are accustomed to. Um, because I think talk to each other. Yeah. You should talk to each other about things. I think shorthand is a way of like escaping shorthand is a way of escaping what we actually mean. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Fuck shorthand. Yeah. Tell them you're an alpaca. And when they ask what it is, say it's kind of like a llama, but smaller. And then when they ask what that is, say I'm dating other people right now. (laughs) Make up your own shorthand. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, no, but seriously, uh, what about what about being like, yeah, totally. What's um? <laughs> Never mind. I take it back. It would be terrible. <laughs> Wait, Stick with now the you have to... thing. Well, no. If somebody like, so you want to get coffee sometime? Be like, yeah, yeah. What's your preferred relationship model? I take it back. Don't do that. <laughs> that would be really weird. Maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Leading try it. See what happens. Relationship you, okay, try person who wrote the question in. Try it. And let us know how it went. <laughs> and I'll try it too. We'll, get, we'll come back. But I like the alpaca thing. Stick with that. On to question three. Hey, SFSP. Thanks for what you do. I am a cisgendered You're bisexual welcome. woman living in a Midwestern city, and I find myself extremely attracted to trans guys. I know this is cool in and of itself, and I know the short answer to my question is, humans are humans. Just be a human and treat other humans as humans. But still, I don't have any close friends who are trans, and I fear saying the wrong thing if I am hitting on someone who is trans. I'm wondering if you might include a non-binary guest in answering this. What is a sort of primer or guidelines for being friends with and dating trans people, and how do I get the opportunity to meet more people who are trans? So I think this is so adorably worded. Um, and we happen to have a non-binary guest with us. <laughs> and we've already unpacked how trans as a shorthand is problematic and mm-hmm. all of that. But um, I don't know, are you, is it, is it exhausting and annoying too? No, I think conversations about fetish in general are really interesting um, as our conversations about desire and where it comes from. Um, I'll go, I guess, from broad to narrow. Um, This question of like fetishize, like I said, is interesting to me, I think, because it can't be separated from our conversations about everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it doesn't just, people don't just like uh, emerge on the planet and randomly have like Asian fetish, right? Like that's not how it happens. Um, It (laughs) happens because there were like extraordinary and like extended histories of colonization in Asia. Um, And part of like being able to do that was like, sexual violence against Asia and people. Um, right. So this, it, it is like, um, it does often come from a place of like, uh, colonial impulse or like if you're fetishizing people who, um, present in a particular way, it's often about class. It's like, does this person look good enough for you? Right. Um, desire is always motivated by in some way or another, um, 
I don't know, the places that, by the places that we occupy, the positions mm-hmm. and identities and histories that we occupy. Um, so when I think of, when I come to think about questions like this, like how do I reconcile this kind of difference, right? Like how do I um, talk about how I'm attracted to like a, uh, certain people, um, but not others? I guess for me, it starts from a place of like, why do you find these things beautiful and ugly? How are they can uh, link to broader systems? Um, but then on like a basic level, I totally agree with what this person says, which is that like humans are humans. Um, I'm at the end of the day, like not as invested in like an individual person. Um, I guess, uh, I, I think there is like personal transformation that can happen through like, uh, in like doing self-examination and political work around your own desire. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't care necessarily who you're sleeping with if they're like pretty good for you, as long as you like show up to the rally. Um, like that's the place that I come from. Um, it's like if there, if you have ways of managing your relationships that are like sustainable and healthy for you so that you can be like a body and a voice in the movement, um, good. And, and that might be an answer to how do I meet more trans people too? Like yeah. show up to the rally. Yeah. Political people are sexy people. Um, we have a lot of fun, but I think, yeah. And a lot of trans people in general, because like there are like attacks on basic humanity every day um, of trans people and other marginalized people. Um, are often ones doing political work. Um, and it's like a good space to, I think, grow ourselves both as like um, community members, right? As like queer community members um, and like meet people and form relationships that are at once like political and romantic. And I think that can mm. be a really awesome place to build. And I didn't mean show up to the rally just to hit on people. Yeah. I meant, <laughs> I meant get, get engaged with the community. Get engaged with the community. The thing to do and, and then also, voila. Get engaged to the community. Get engaged with the community. What of this worry about saying the wrong thing? Mm. I don't know. I can't say that I've been immune to that. Sure. No, we've, we've, we mean, fucked up on this podcast. I, many friends of mine who... Uh, who identifies as non-binary, like get asked about like surgery all the time. And I know that that's often like really, really, really unwelcome. But I think when people, when in society we like conflate sex and gender and gender identity as like definitely bundled in this one thing that that's, that that's, I don't know, that's tricky. And so I guess in terms of like a primer or guidelines, like stuff not to say, is it okay to go there? Yeah. But that's got to be a question for not us. <laughs> yeah. Um, stuff not to say to trans people. I mean, there's so much. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. The way I think about it is like if you wouldn't randomly go up to this person and ask them these questions and you shouldn't randomly go up to a trans person asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Like this is how I feel about people using other people as textbooks in general. Um, it's like, okay, think about the person who has the, the position of power in this case, which would be the cisgender person. Um, and if you wouldn't give them an equivalent question, like you wouldn't go to a cis person and be like, what's in your pants, right? Like, did you have a surgery today? Um, then like, or like, what's your hormone level? Like none of this is important information for you. Um, I have a friend who, um, uh, when talking about his, his, um, boyfriend or, or partner or husband would often refer to, um, his partner and never get specific and watch people get uncomfortable around, uh, uh, with him never being gender specific. And I had another friend who, who had said like, 
well, um, you know, I, I, that is kind of annoying. And I said, why? The, 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 the information you are being given is that he's off the market. What do you care who he is off the market with? Right. This is, this mm-hmm. is how this is ex- expressed. Yeah. So, um, um, I, I don't know. Um, there, there's a sense of like, re- remind yourself that, uh, be be kind and and ask yourself why if it if it matters if you're in a position of power and it matters ask yourself why it matters do some investigation into why you think why why that is information you think you are entitled to don't treat people like google <laughs> there's a guideline but do treat google like people say please don't do that. <laughs> did we cut you off before no i'm still? good okay um anything else that you want to add to this discussion before we move on? Go to the rally. Yeah. Okay. On to quickies and whatever Stephanie does. <laughs> Stephanie's marathon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I try, we'll, I try, we'll do quickies. Guys. And um, so if you want to get to the quickies, jump ahead <laughs> like 12 minutes. Oh, no. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Well, <laughs> Stephanie, we'll see. what's your quickie for today? Well, my, my quickie, which is going to be long, is... Um, is a continuation of a lot of what we were talking about. Actually, I like, planned to talk about this beforehand, but we've we've mentioned some of this before. But um, just the idea we've said love is a verb on the podcast a lot, and that queer is a verb, and that I'm thinking a lot more about ally as a verb. Okay. And as I said before, um, learning that more deeply and listening more deeply. And um, there was this book that recently came out called Secrets of the Sex Masters. It was published by Carl Frankel. And it was a lot of great people and people that we love. Charlie Glickman, Reed Mahalko, wonderful sex educators that I have a lot of respect for. Okay. But in this whole collection, there wasn't a single voice of color in the whole whole collection. And so this awesome network, the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, um, wrote a deservedly scathing letter about this and um, saying you didn't send for us so we came for you and um, the response first from the publishers of the book was because it's 16 like sex experts and and all white people and um, and the response first was like oops well we didn't know you existed and so they go on in this letter to explain how deeply problematic that is but also just I want to be upfront that like you know we're curators of sexuality education content and we uh, we do have an eye toward toward practicing progressive stack but do not do that perfectly or enough and so you and you and me sex with smart people yeah okay yeah that like we're uh, we are also complicit in what the the women of color sexual health network is calling out and so i just want to express our commitment to continuing to learn ally as a verb. And I want to read two excerpts. Um, one is something I revisited that Tim Wise, who wrote White Like Me, um, uh, wrote in 2007 um, that I came across again this past week when um, just grappling with with all the the like extra strong civil rights fires that are raging. And then also an excerpt from this letter from the uh, Women of Color Sexual Health Network. So here's the excerpt from Tim Wise. Um, 
My point being that in every generation, members of the dominant group have said there is no problem. And in every generation, without fail, we have been wrong. And in every generation, people of color, those who are the targets of that oppression and subordination, have said there is a problem. And in every generation, without fail, they have been right. So the question for us today is, what are the odds, honestly, that people of color who have never gotten it wrong have suddenly lost their freaking minds and have suddenly become unable to see truth and to separate it from fiction? And counter to that, what are the odds that white folks who have never gotten it right yet have suddenly become highly, highly perceptive. The odds are pretty long. And again, it's not because white folks are insensitive or hard hearted, let alone stupid. But it is that those of us who are white have the luxury of not knowing black and brown truth. We don't know because we don't have to know similar to what you said before Dave and so this is an excerpt from this letter which I highly recommend everybody to go read especially if you're in the sexuality field let's hold each other hugely accountable to this it's the women of color sexual health network and the article is you didn't send for us so we came for you and The excerpt is, yes, for many of us, our bodies of color do experience sex and pleasure differently. Our bodies are not solely genes and biology, but also the histories written on them and the myriad ways we have to navigate the world differently than white people, particularly for those of us who are racially black and marked immediately as other. Let us first remind you and everyone reading, we still fight to this day to be seen as human beings. From the historical misuse and abuse of the bodies of women of color in this country and abroad to the current murders of trans women of color because of of their gender assigned at birth and race intersect the number the numerous black men murdered by law enforcement and the vast number of native women who disappear and are murdered each year with no national outcry some of us never even get the opportunity to really experience sex or sexual pleasure because we do not live long enough some of us carry shame about our bodies just by virtue of their color or the racialized traits they carry which impacts how much pleasure we think we are even worthy of that's why any conversation about sexuality is also about race. That's why the case of Mike Brown and Ferguson is not just about police brutality, but also about reproductive justice and white supremacy. And a paragraph, one more paragraph from later in the letter. Want to be considered someone who stands in solidarity with us? Show us. Show us better than you can tell us. Proactively, not reactively. Standing in solidarity is not a title you give to yourself. It is something earned through ongoing work to stand in solidarity with communities you are not a part of. Let these necessary conversations continue far beyond this point in time. It is up to all of you reading. This is not just a blip in social media for us, a moment in time with hopes of exposure and recognition. This is an ongoing battle of countless efforts to show we matter or of having to prove ourselves, even to ourselves, to counteract the white supremacy that is so deeply ingrained in the system. We are here. Wow. That's my marathon for today. Worth worth it. Totally worth it. Thank you. You want to go next or you? Yeah, I can go next. Super. Um, So something that Alok, my creative partner, and I have been doing for the past uh, month or so um, has been in solidarity with the organization that we had the opportunity to work with uh, a couple summers ago. It's called Al-Khaus. It is a queer community organizing platform in Palestine um, that's doing so much of the really difficult um, creative and simultaneously creative and political work um, of doing community organizing under like really, really harsh conditions of like literally fractured community, a mm-hmm. community that's fractured by a wall, right? Um, and by occupation um, and developing uh, scripts and ideas and language around um, 
what it means to do uh, queer work in a context where queer work, uh, like queer itself, has uh, in so many ways become co-opted by um, the oppressors. In that case, right? Like uh, Tel Aviv Pride, like exists in the same context that like queer Palestinians are struggling to like have their voices heard, right? Um, so how to do um, gender and sexuality work at those like really critical um, and hard intersections. Um, so anyway, we've been running running a fundraiser for them for the past um, couple months. Um, and if people go to uh, Indiegogo and search Solidarity Alkaus, A-L-K-A-D, uh, A-L-Q-A-W-S Alkaus um, is A-L-Q-A-W-S you can find it um, it's also posted on our website darkmatterh.com cool thank you um, uh, um, I okay um, this relates to something we were talking about earlier but something that has been in my mind is a, is a, a truth that um, a, a radical friend has reminded me <laughs> Um, during stressful times, which are, as we discussed, all of the times, which is that self-care is radical. Um, and trying to keep that in mind and trying to not also not use that as an excuse to inaction um, has occupied a lot of my time this week to remember that um, just that phrase has been in my head, self-care is radical, um, which I hadn't heard before. So I wanted to share that as an idea and um, also share that it is difficult for me to then not use that as an excuse. Um, I don't know. Think about it. Remember to be nice to yourself and uh, remember to be nice to yourself. <laughs> and Jenny, thank you again so, so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you and the work that you do and want to um, yeah, stay rock. in conversation with you. And um, so now we're going to share your poem, A Love Story. Sometimes I dream about breaking up with you. Other times I dream about you meeting my parents. One is a dream and the other is probably a nightmare. And sometimes they switch places. Last week, you asked me if the gift I gave you meant goodbye. At some point I lied, but certain lies keep the world oiled. Like in the beginning, there was violence. Then the word came to smooth it over. Like, babies come from the sky. Like, Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery. Like, nuclear disarmament. Cage-free eggs. I love you and this isn't goodbye. After the goodbyes and lies are over, we'll all drink weak tea and play truth or truth and tear each other open. The truth is, I lose often at crosswords. Four letters across creates happiness. Blank. The truth is, when other people speak of healing and happiness, ask me if I've tried yoga, I tell them I can only use a Band-Aid if I understand why I am bleeding. Does that make sense? It might not even be my blood. This is the way of things. Sometimes, I panic when I look at sunsets, like I loved the sky so much, I tore it open, then it bled. This is the way of things. This is how love works. The pilgrims loved the land, so they stole it. We loved Brooklyn, so we gentrified it. 
Our parents loved us and they messed us up. I learned to love my body and then I took a needle to him. The truth is, I hope one of us gets swallowed by a whale and lives out our years digesting all that loneliness. I hope the other dies very quickly. I hope the ending is very obvious and dramatic like a bad opera. I wish we were living in a Bible verse. Maybe this is just capitalism and patriarchy speaking, or maybe it's me, afraid that we will be obsolete before my MacBook. Either way, I am asking if you will tear up the sunset with me so we can never say that things fell apart or that we were painfully ordinary or that one day you rode the express train a little farther and never came back, or that one day we lived in different cities and I forgot to pick up the phone. Let's do it tonight, while the sky feels raw and your hands still know how to lock into mine for the tearing. The truth is, the story of sex is one of failure and absence, the night we made love, the years we spend unmaking it. Every other night, the truth is, I have this dream where I bleed to shreds and this nightmare where you sew me back together and sometimes we switch places. The truth is, holding you in my arms reminds me of dying. The truth is, your whole body feels like an argument. The truth is, eventually we will tie up affection and spray painted absence, whether for depression or plague or time and tiredness. The truth is, I will not die without you. The truth is. I am terrible at titles and worse at endings. The truth is, however radical the love is, it will sink. There will just be no papers. There will be no words at all, no meaning, no gravestone. The truth is, one day, you'll walk up to me in a crowded room and shake my hand. You'll say it was good to see me. It will be polite and clean. The truth is, a few months later, we'll have lunch in another crowded room. So that's it for episode 22, and thanks again so much to John and me. And you can find more of their work at queerdarkenergy.com, and we look forward to staying in conversation with them far beyond this episode. And as always, we are so, so grateful to be in conversation with all of you. We saw recently that we now have subscribers in 74 different countries. And we're particularly curious. We see that we have one subscriber in Iraq. And if that is you and you are listening, please write in. Let us know who you are and how you found out about us. And, um, and we want to extend that holiday ask of tell three friends about us to maybe one of those three is somebody in a different state or even a different country. Um, we're so passionate about continuing to widen all of these conversations. And we love hearing from you at any time. Send us questions for us, questions that you'd like us to address with a guest. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your objections, your complaints, any ideas that you have. We look forward to continuing to, to grow this with your help 
in in the future. And thanks so much to all of our patrons. And if you're not already our patron and might consider chipping in to help us keep afloat, check us out at patreon.com slash sex for smart people. We're so close to breaking even per episode. And on our next episode, we'll be joined by Jimena Amandares. And she is the chief product officer of OkCupid. And she is at the forefront of querying the OkCupid algorithm. You may have heard this already, but um, OkCupid is very soon going to start offering many, many different options for pronouns and sexual orientation and even relationship orientation. And um, we think it's just amazing. And we're really looking forward to digging in with Jimena about all that, that that's going on there. And um, thank you again from the bottom of our hearts for being in conversation with us. Happy all of the holidays to you. Hugs where everyone in the hug really fucking means it are the sexiest. Um, I'm going to do an anti one. I think that this weather is not the sexiest. Uh, <laughs> Let me say compassionately channeled outrage is the sexiest.